So, you remember the episode you did? Do you remember that? Yeah, that was awesome. That was awesome. The episode you did where you gave your father a blessing? I do. Okay. I literally listened to that episode and sobbed. Because I wished I could have done that for my dad. But I'm a female. I couldn't. Right. And it was beautiful. Beautiful. It was beautiful for you to reach across and show him that love. Just very touching. Thank you. <laughs> um, that was the breaking point because I think I told him my story and what led up to that was almost a physical fight. Over fucking words, man. Yeah. Over words. This is Infants on Thrones, the philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode 592, Words, Schmerds, Guilt and Empathy Revisited. So about a week ago, I republished our second ever episode that we recorded seven years ago. It was called Guilt. And in that reissued episode, I included some clips from Brene Brown on Empathy versus Sympathy, another clip called It's Not About the Nail, and then an excerpt from Abraham Hicks, basically saying that guilt comes about by bringing past regrets into the present moment, and then worrying about what others think of you rather than being really self-confident in the knowledge that everything you've ever done has brought you to this current moment, and in this current moment, you're actually pretty safe. And then she mentioned how ridiculous it would be if a lion were laying around getting all depressed by regretting all the animals that it ever ate. So anyway, I published that episode along with the original seven-year-ago guilt episode, and I invited listeners to join us for a conversation about what we think about guilt and empathy and all of that now, seven years after the fact. And then last night, we had that discussion. Tom and Matt joined me, as did seven or eight other listeners who support the podcast on Patreon. Hey, come support us on Patreon. There's an idea. And today, you're going to hear that discussion, as well as an extended Easter egg that I recorded and sent to Tom as a follow-up to something that came up in the course of discussion and I just kept thinking about afterwards. So... That's the episode today. And I think my favorite moment of today's episode is what you just heard in that introduction. You remember the episode you did? Yeah, that was awesome. That was a listener named Tracy who was telling Matt in kind of a Chris Farley-esque, remember? (laughs) And, And Matt goes, yeah, that was awesome. And then she lowered the boom about what one of Matt's previous episodes actually meant to her and opened up just a lot of emotion and vulnerability. And I just loved that moment for so many reasons. But mostly, I loved it because all too often, my inner critical gremlin tells me how stupid I am for doing this whole Infants on Thrones thing for as long as I've been doing it. But when I hear from listeners who've really benefited from the effort that I and my fellow infants have put into this project over the years... It kicks that critical inner gremlin in the nuts. Oh, no. 
And I think that all of our inner critical gremlins need to be put in their place like that as often as possible. Because in the grand scheme of things, all is well. Right, Tom? <laughs> Even if Tom Perry makes me listen to a podcast called Batman vs. Superman by the Minute, where, I shit you not, they dedicate an entire episode to every single minute... Every single minute is a new episode of that awful Batman versus Superman movie. Save Martha! Why did you say that name? Why did you say that name? It's his mother's name. You told me the world only makes sense if you force it to. Really? Anyway, so words, schmerds, guilt and empathy revisited. That's your episode today, and it starts right now. Hey, Tom. <clears throat> Hey, can you hear me? Uh-huh. How's it going, man? Pretty good. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. I, I started listening to a little bit of that Batman versus Superman podcast that you sent, where they'd like take it one minute at a time. That sounds like it's grueling. Yeah, click it. Best thing ever, right? It, it, it's a good idea if if you want to spend that much time talking about Batman <laughs> over and over again, why, w- why would I'm not judging it. Yeah. It sounds like you're being pretty judgy to me. No, I thought, I thought that sounds like it could be kind of, you know, and I, I like the approach. I like the idea. You can, they can hear you now. Hello. Hi, Celeste. Hey, nice to meet you. Excuse me. Got my son helping me here. Oh yeah. Giving me some, I, Technical I, I, help. I can't see him because of the camouflage shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that podcast got me to watch the movie again, in fact. Really? Yeah, I think that's my third time watching it. <sighs> yeah, I, I, I tried to watch it a second time, maybe about a year ago, to, to show my kids. And they're like, really, Dad, you're making us watch this thing? And so I just fast forwarded to like the Martha part so we could all laugh. <laughs> it's a bad movie did you think uh, that even the th- after the third time I, you know I, I i never really thought it was a bad movie I, well how do you define what a bad movie is i well i, uh, I, get, I went through it tried to get through it three times and three times Matt. I, I, it's a bad movie no Matt. no no it's not it's actually not a bad movie it's it's how, how do you how do you it's it's a lot of dense information crammed into a movie. Dense information. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was he was trying too hard to put too much. Right. Had, I mean, some, had too much going on. It's it's hard to follow. Some might call that approach to movie making bad. <laughs> uh, others others who have understandable soft spots that sounds subjective hey. is what that is. <laughs> that's a subjective no wait no it's objective <laughs> it's a bad movie universally tom, yeah, everybody tom. everybody but you tom you must agree to that movie. all right so so we've said hi to celeste we've said said hi to dustin uh tracy hi there hi so I, I recognize your name because you comment a lot on Patreon. Have you joined us for one of these live ones before? It seems like maybe. No, I haven't. No? no, okay. Well, I did one time by accident and was trying to figure it out. And I raised my hand and you said something. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. So I tried to get off real quick. 
Sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome. Um, and yeah, if, if any of you guys want to do your video, we've got Celeste and Tom and Matt and me on video and the rest of you not, but it's optional, but it's nice to see faces. And then Nahi, or hi, Nahi, it's Nahi. Um, I'm, I just joined Patreon. I figured I'd check it out. So nice. nice. So, so Nahi, is that a Nathan? Yeah, I didn't, I don't know where it came up with that name, but it, or okay. that's like a nickname. I don't know why it added that to this chat, but whatever. All right. Well, welcome. Welcome, Nathan. All right. So wh where do you guys want to start? So Tom, this was, this was originally your episode seven years ago, Gil. And I, we've talked about it a couple of times since then. I think, Matt, do you remember when it was that we talked with, uh, with Colton? Specifically about Gil, you mean? Yeah, because I, I remember the thing with, Col like, with Colton he he talked about the difference between guilt and shame and that was the first time i'd made that distinction and i thought oh okay so so that the shame is when you think that you are bad because you did something bad whereas guilt right. you just recognize that you did something bad it, it was last year last yeah. i'm gonna say last school year it's my school year yeah <laughs> i was up at flagstaff that's my frame of reference mm. yeah so so what did you think tom as you listened back to that from from seven years ago oh i don't know i mean i don't <laughs> i don't know i don't necessarily like to listen to the stuff that i try to either brainstorm together or produce or whatever because then i'm constantly thinking about you know the technical side of things that drive drive me crazy but the topic itself i still like and i i still remember some of the reasons man it was weird to listen to myself that i was still going to church then right that was weird <laughs> <laughs> seems like it's been a long time since i've been you know yeah out. but uh yeah I, you know just separating myself kind of pulling the shackles of guilt and shame away from the church um i remember feeling a lot freer psychologically from the church because I think I used the example of the the home teachers trying to kind of use the manipulation through guilt and shame. Like, come on, man, you got to get your numbers. Right. And it wasn't having any effect on me like it used to. Yeah. That's that's when I the light bulb went off in my head. Like oh, something's different now. Yeah. <laughs> Normally that would have worked, but it didn't. And I was like, no, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder what's happened or what's shifted internally in me. So. That's what was the impetus, I remember. Um, but, you know, even listening back to it and thinking about my relationship with guilt and even thinking back to the conversation we had with Colton, it's interesting to think that guilt still has a, a big role to play in my life. I don't know if it plays a big role in everybody else's lives, but, you know, especially with my family, uh, my parents, my siblings, um, even just everyday stuff i constantly still feel guilt and i think it's partly due to the fact that i'm trying i'm always trying to impress or gain respect from people so i'm always going above and beyond to make sure that if, you know at the end of this interaction or conversation or relationship that they're not going to um think less of me or that i'm not going to feel guilty for the way i handled it or the what i said or whatever so no no reactions on that just, just taking it in man just yeah. slow nods like yeah that sucks for you tom <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
how about you, Glenn? What was your takeaway from the seven-year-old episode? I'm going to say almost because right the back-to-back one, kind of the intro, which was a good setup to that one. So, what, what was your? Well, it. I, I liked the format. So I was like focusing on the format and like I could tell where there were edits that were made and, and inserts. And I, I just thought back to ourselves seven years ago being kind of ambitious to talk about a lot of different things that we all kind of squeezed into this episode that we called guilt. Um, so it, it just seemed like there was a lot that, that we covered and uh, I enjoyed hearing everybody's uh, opinion. I, I, think, I think where I'm at now I think that, that the idea of guilt um, is based on an idea that there are things that are wrong. And I've been trying to look at the world from this perspective of all is well and everything's okay and things are going, like even the things that are problematic are okay and that's a struggle. <laughs> so, so I was trying to look at it through that lens and not quite sure if it even works or, or how to do it. But uh, yeah. That's where I'm at with it. That confuses the hell out of me. I still have no idea what it is you're talking about. Like everything's fine. You don't make any errors, mistakes, and no, that's not no, no. Just chooses not to acknowledge them, and then it feels (laughs) it doesn't acknowledge. No, no, it's you just choose your god, and then no. (laughs) No, but but even the mistakes are okay. Like you know, failure is how you learn. And so of course you make mistakes, you acknowledge the mistakes, you learn from the mistakes and, and it's just part of the game. It's just part of existence and just accepting the things that are more than not accepting the thing. But isn't, but isn't a ghoul or isn't guilt a tool in your toolbox to get you to a place where you're making less mistakes and errors? Isn't that kind of the goal? Yeah, I think it can be. Yeah, for sure. So, well, go, no. Matt. No. What do you think, Matt? Well, I didn't really listen to you guys at all. I just fo- I was just laser focused on me. It was just yeah. a narcissistic approach to right. No, um, I was. I had two reactions. One was, um, man, these guys are pretty insightful. That was some good stuff there. And then, what a. F- bunch of fucking idiots they know nothing but are so confident that they see so far like i said i didn't listen to you guys i was listening to one guy um Uh so it was this the that was it was um really this uh what's what's this word juxtaposition (laughs) um of of that um i was also just struck by how small the conversation was and how the, the it's it's clear how how mired in the Mormon experience we were, and that knowing how how I've progressed and where I am today, and where where uh, basically everyone on that recording was, that was it was real interesting to go back to see the evolution of a lot of things and the absolute non progress. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're gonna to have to elaborate on that one more. Where, where, where was the attempt? Good, 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 good. Where, where was the? Where, where, I don't know what to start with. Where do you want to start with the progress or the non-progress? No, I so well. Um, the 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 I don't know progress. The, the lack of progress is. Um, I just don't feel like these topics 
um, I think th- there's a lot of talking past each other because of language. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to jump in and say, no, wait, def- define that better. Define yeah. that more clearly. Give me a better example. And even like right here, I wanted, I, I, because that's been in my mind, as you guys started talking, I'm like, ah, mm, ah. like what's mistake? What is it to be better? Yeah. Is it the, those, those vague terms are, are, have become just a, I don't know, just a, like a, like a, I don't know, a, a splinter in my, in my ear anymore. Um, and I find myself in my conversations with, with people um, adopting something that my little brother always does. And I, I've always loved this about him is anyone, somebody use, uses a word that's just a little polysyllabic. He says, what's that word mean? And for like what does polysyllabic mean, Matt? Oh, uh, no, uh, uh, um, multiple syllables. Multiple um, syllables. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so I'm doing that a lot more, but with, with not with um, big words, you know, the, uh, one of my favorite lines in, in, uh, from a, a, a person who used to review my, my written work would say, mm, uh, don't use a dollar word when a 10 cent word is, works just as well. Mm. And, but those aren't the words that, that I question now. It's the ones that we use every day. Um, God, belief, love, charity, um, empathy is, is one of them. Shame. Um, these, these words, um, I think, I think they all, um, there's, there's, there's words now in the, um, especially in the psychological realm that have just become as, as, um, subjective as religious terms. And so I'm seeing a lot of the same, you know, uh, PTSD is a great, great example as well. It, it just, at some point, these words have, it's not that they've lost meaning. They have particular meaning for individuals. And then when they have, when we're having conversations about these words that have particular meaning, we're talking in that, in those words, but the meaning that each individual has in the conversation couldn't be more different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I want to dig into that um, quite a bit because if I'm going to claim that um, other individuals aren't as precise with language, um, I hope maybe I can walk it out and, and, uh, and demonstrate otherwise. But, but it, we go to God, the concept of God. One of my, uh, I heard a line by someone who I hate, uh, but that's okay. Um, I, liked, I liked what that person had to say. Um, Is that person here? He's bald and he yeah. likes the oh. Justice League. And <laughs> you like Batman, Superman, dumbass. <laughs> no, and he, he said, um, you know, the question, do you believe in God is <laughs> meaningless until we say, um, what do you mean by God? What do you mean by belief? And then we can start narrowing down to a, to a conversation. And so um, one of the things I've been doing online on Facebook, but so my Facebook's just an absolute fiction anymore. I, no one, no one that is a friend or can see my, my shit on Facebook because I put most of my stuff public now. It should really be received with um, either tongue in cheek, grain of salt, whatever metaphor uh, there is. Because at this point, I'm just fucking with language um, and seeing what, you know, how people respond to words and the um, fictions that people create 
based on the words that that I'm using. Um, and it's fun because in in that context, there are certain people who know me now and and um, understand what I what I mean when I say certain things. And then the people either from especially you know you, you the cross section of high school friends that I literally haven't spoken to in over twenty years, mm. uh, old work friends, you know, the, just you, you know what Facebook looks like, um, and just the. In their world, I, I exist as a certain, you know, a certain person with these certain ideologies and no one uh, could be further, you know, further from the reality of what I believe, what I'm saying, what I am, what I, what I, what I think. And I just now find a lot of just, <laughs> um, I don't know what the word is, just a little bit of, not joy, but just more, I, I, I find some entertainment. Yeah, um, yeah. Over, over, like over baiting that. people and bringing them into, and then just messing with them with language. Yeah, and then, yeah. and then, but particularly, I like to bait people in because um, at this point, I feel pretty comfortable um, using words. Um, but baiting people in to then say, "Well, wait, what do you mean by that? Would you please define that for me?" And I've yet to have it. So God's a great one. I've asked probably. <laughs> 50 to 100 people um, over the course of the last little bit online um, and in person to, would you, would you please define God for me? And, and, and I'm talking cross sections of, of individuals. Nobody's, nobody does it. It's always this. Okay. And then what, what does that mean? And what does that mean? I mean, you're, you're using vague terms to describe vague terms, to describe vague terms, to describe vague terms. It's like, you don't really know. So you're using street epistemology on people, kind of. So I'm not sure what that is. I I oh. use the uh, um, I, I I use the Socratic method. Yeah, that's the, yeah. The, yeah similar. Similar, yeah. Yeah, so I, I have yeah, so I use the Socratic method and um, some other philosophical approaches, but more more than anything, I. I have confirmed or have established in my mind the words I want to use um, and then examples, metaphors, and other things to, to make sure that I, um, I can, I at least feel comfortable um, answering the questions that I'm, that I'm asking. I think it was, I think it was Albert Einstein or Andrew Dice Clay. I forget which one. Uh, they're close. Uh, um, they always, always confuse the two. Yeah, right. Um, uh, you know, until you are comfortable explaining this, a concept to a six year old, um, essentially shut the fuck up. Oh, I think it was that, but, um, <laughs> essentially. So, and I've taken that to heart and I've been thinking about that. And so instead I just talk to kids all the time. Does that make sense? Does that, Hey, six year old, does that make sense? I don't have any kids in my, you know, little kids in my home anymore. So it's gotten a little weird, but basically that's. So I, I want to ask you a question, Matt, about the words and the like subjective meaning and, and vague on top of vague on top of vague. Sure. Do, do you, is the ultimate goal for you to have everybody using the same, like to have the same definitions to come to a common consensus with these important words, or is it really just the exploration of yes. the contrast and exploring the contrast yes. and what comes out? in that so there are people that I, I take it back there are people who have answered these questions and who i've had a conversations with and 
it's those people that we, it's not for the purpose of saying we must have used the same term. It's yeah. let's make sure we're talking about the same concept. concept. One of my, this thing that just drives in my mind, I, I remember this, uh, like my first year of, co- of um, Spanish uh, in, in college, uh, the instructor was, would, would not use definitions for a while. And he, he would constantly be talking, talking, and he, and he'd say conceptos, conceptos, right? Not words, concepts. And I applied that when I went on my mission, um, you know, was learning a language because, you know, up to that point, uh, the, 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 um, uh, the missionaries that came before had this like one-to-one translation. This word means this, this word means this, this word means yeah. this. And anyone who knows, you know, has right. dealt with foreign language, you just can't do that. Yeah. Um, you know, that one of the, one of the, anyway. And, and so as I kept thinking, I, conceptos, <laughs> conceptos. Um, and so what I want instead to say, when you say that word, what do you mean? And then to have them say, okay, well, what I mean is this. Oh, okay. No, that's very helpful. Not only is it, helpful because I understand the word, but in you using different words than I use to describe now what I think is close to a shared concept, you've actually helped me gain greater understanding of that concept by using different words, but we know we're talking about the same thing. Um, you know, there's a, there's a number of examples of that if you, if you want to do to, to, to dig in, but, um, but that's the, that's the mean because to otherwise, but because I hold the opinion that the greatest disconnection that we have and probably the greatest, um, the, the thing that corrupts um, institutions the most is, a, is fetishizing and relying on one particular type of language. So anything that gets, starts getting reduced to writing, um, whether it be scriptural, you know, um, you know the, the concept of a, of a scripture or... Um, even uh, government, you know, <laughs> governing um, documents, code, uh, in, including, um, you know, judicial um, opinions. It really becomes now, we, once that happens, we stop arguing or we stop discussing concepts and instead we're arguing over words. Um, and I see that happening in the religious context. I see that happening in the legal context and the educational context. You know, a- anymore, um, there's not um, it, it, this, these vague terms or these all terms have just, um, you know, we're, we're kind of talking past each other too often. And, you know, the, 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 again, the, the clips you, you shared, um, you know, prior to this kind of reinforced that for me. And, and, and especially um, the Brene Brown one where she's talking about empathy because mm. versus sympathy. Yeah. And did, I, did, did you have that same kind of knee-jerk reaction that I did that she was being too narrow with those definitions? Well, yeah, in that, yes, in that I wanted to say, whoa, 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 what do you, what do you mean by empathy? She said, well, empathy leads to connection. Yeah, sympathy. fuels connection. Yeah, sympathy goes, you know. Drives this connection. connection, yeah. And I was like, whoa, 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 wait, what, what yeah. is empathy? Because it, it's, it's an interesting concept. So when I, so I've been thinking a lot about empathy yeah. um, lately and really i've been thinking a lot about low empathy and how to communicate you know either either because to understand a concept for me is a great place to start is well let's look at what is not that right um but as i've been thinking about it it just seems we've replaced the word empathy um or, or empathy has been replaced yeah replace words like love 
charity. Cause she could have very easily said, well, love, um, leads to what is it drives uh, a yeah. connection yeah. not having love leads to disconnection like oh my gosh that might be one of the most brilliant thing i've you know i've ever heard because i have a certain concept of what it means to love and, and so without digging into really what is empathy and what do i mean by that what does that look like and what are examples of that rather than just saying well either you have it either you have hair or you don't right either either it's a on on switch and that's um, why I think her, what, what she was doing was incredibly vague. And so it wasn't helpful to get into any, um, any shared understanding um, of, you know, how to get to connection uh, because there's no real understanding of what um, empathy. So I, I really spent some time. Or even of what connection means. Right. What, what, is yeah, right. <laughs> what does that mean? Right. And this is, uh, you know, but again, we, everybody, you know, claps. Oh, oh. And I feel like a general conference meeting yeah. where people are just like, yes, they're speaking the words of my heart. They are. She is. Yeah. He's using these vague language in this and you are assuming you have a shared understanding um, of what she's talking about when she says, um, the word empathy. Did, so didn't she it. say something though about the empathy? She talked about like somebody in the bottom of a well. Yeah. And like if you the difference between sympathy and empathy. Yeah. I thought that kind of cleared it up a little bit more. Well, I, and and I I I think that that was like a two and a half minute clip from probably a much larger um, talk where there were little excerpts that were taken out and then put to this. Um, animated graphic um that you know somebody spent a lot of time putting together and 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 they wanted to make the point that when if you really want to love someone or empathize with someone then just sit with them in their feelings and don't try to fix it and don't say well at least it, it isn't as bad as that you know and, and these kinds of things yeah which, well so let's dig in empathy you guys you guys have a have a um a way to describe that or the meaning of that term to you. So there's, again, there's a number of terms, empathy, vulnerability, shame, um, PTSD. These are, these are roles, but um, empathy in particular, I'm, I'm interested in if, if, how would you explain that to me? A six-year-old, a child who doesn't understand, uh, who clearly doesn't understand empathy. If, if you were in first grade, I would probably say, cause they, when they, talk to kids when they're learning to read they say they try to teach them about text to self so like when you put yourself in the story mm. like you're really one of the characters and how would you feel how would you react if you were one of those people i don't know if that's the best thing i can because that is a little different than sympathy yeah but they're interconnected i mean yeah it's it's a difficult thing to describe i guess if i were to take a crack at it i would have said can you move the mic closer to your mouth tom sorry is that any better a little it's still kind of soft hang on sorry i just like you hearing your voice (laughs) (laughs) Uh, oh the zoom setting is snagged my eye i wish you didn't suck so bad at this Thing. I know, dude. Always, that was it's not like, very empathetic. Let me put myself in your position, Tom. It's really hard. But there's also a key: work. you have to be genuine and not a smartass when you do it, too. You always you keep telling me that. So yeah. Um. So if I were to try to describe it, I would say 
to someone who's young, I'd say empathy is the act of trying, genuinely trying and understanding where another person resides with their emotions or what they're feeling or what they're experiencing or what they're going through. And then obviously you'd kind of use metaphors or whatever. Like if you're watching a movie and you get sad when, you know, the dog dies and the family is very sad about losing their dog and you feel those emotions, that's a skill of empathy. Mm -hmm. Understanding like that would be tragic to go through what they're going through. That's what I, that's my attempt. So there you go. Yeah. Glenn, what do you think? I struggle with the same things that you do, Matt. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know that there, there's a really um, rock solid definition that I have for empathy. I, I think of empaths. So I, like I start kind of breaking down the word and thinking of, um, you know, uh, synonyms, you know, or, or I got, I don't know if empath is a synonym or not, but, but an empath is somebody who feels the feelings of other people. And so I think about empathy is, feeling the feelings. And I, I, I know people talk about a difference between intellectualizing something and actually feeling something. I, I think I tend to more intellectualize things in my head. And I've been told that I need to feel things more in my body, that I need to have more empathy. So that's where it kind of has shown up for me in conversations with people. Hmm. But I, you know, back to the very first thing that you said, when you started talking about words, the, these are all symbols that we use to try to represent ideas that are constantly moving and constantly being redefined. And uh, so it's, it's hard to pin it down, I, I think. So I don't really know much more about empathy than that. Hmm. Do um, you guys think, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Tracy. Oh, do you guys think that the church is more empathetic today than they used to be? Or are they just, Kind of. What do you, what do you mean by the church? Yeah, we've yet to talk about empathy. What you know, really pin down what empathy is. So yeah. Well, so, okay. Yes, you know how no, they're trying. Sometimes yeah. in certain situations, but not usually, and not to some people. But they're really empathetic to their people, and some of their responses to um, you know priesthood holders is extremely empathetic. But then sometimes when certain situations happen, depending on who the bishop is and depending on what the situation is exactly and the motivations that the church has, they're extremely low empathy. But then sometimes when you have a number of people in there, there's a lot of people there that are really empathetic to a situation and yet another class of people in the church that are really low empathy. So now I'm, you know, I'm being a bit of a dick, maybe a bit. <laughs> um, but so, so now I'm again. I say, what's the church as a monolith? Um, okay. What's what's empathy? What, I mean what time is... versus when versus when? Because it, arguably, in, in when uh, homeboy white suit, um, 1960s um, anti-Catholic dude, um, there was a lot of empathy, right? Pre, um, you know, pre uh, uh, correlation. You know, there was, uh, you know, even into the 80s with road shows and, and, and these types of things. I think that's a manifestation of, of, of empathy, giving people outlets for um, art and for singing and these types of things. So I, I, I don't know. I don't I mean, that, that's my response to your question. And, and Tracy, I'm, I'm interested to know why why that's an important question to you. You know, like what, okay. why is the church having empathy important? Okay, well, 
admittedly, I'm not a good Mormon. I never was. <laughs> so, I mean, I was baptized when I was eight. My parents were kind of Jack Mormons, and then they got really involved. But by the time I was a teenager, I was we I moved from Texas to Utah. I'm trying to condense this really quick. Utah was a totally different experience than Texas. Mm-hmm. And anyway, as I became a teenager, young adult, mistakes were made, lessons were learned. But I was a single mother, never been married of two, going mm-hmm. to church. Yeah. And kind of that's where I get it from. And so, so I, I, what, what, it, what I think I'm hearing you say, Tracy, is that you, you felt like you didn't usually fit in or that other people weren't necessarily able to relate to your situation as a single mother exactly. of two in this family ward. And so you, you're wondering if maybe the church today has gotten better at recognizing other people and um, empathizing sure. with them or not. Or if it's just kind of a facade, Mm. because when I went to church, you know, they were all nice and everything, but everybody kind of knew I'd never been married. Mm. So they wanted to, you know, kind of empathize, but put the guilt, right? you know, and ask questions and stuff like that. Yeah. And so do you think they, and this was what, in the 90s? Yeah. Do you think they've actually progressed? No. Or, you know, if they're still laying that, the guilt stuff. Well, I think in the Brene Brown world, um, what you've described is is they offer sympathy. Uh, Sort of, yeah. Oh, hey, isn't isn't it horrible that you have that experience? We, We really feel bad that you are going through that for all the reasons. Well, it's... It's some because of that, but you go to hell because you're just yeah. not happy. You're not as worthy and wickedness. And the chewed up bubblegum. Right. Wickedness never was happiness. And so I feel very much sympathy for your wickedness. That's, that's, I, I think there's, um, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of that, but it, it, I, I guess you, the thing that, that I cheer what you said is, um, was this true empathy did this come from a place of, um, you know, love or was it an appearance Were they saying the right words? Do they, do they come off, um, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, a certain way I, I'm always suspect of certain people that go to therapy because they learn the techniques to appear as if they're listening and being, te- and being empathetic, but it's just a, performance um, script a performance yeah yeah and yeah. so yeah um yeah so that it's, it's hard it's hard to know and for, for me um i've i've i i've tried to stop um evaluating um what other people's intentions are because intent is another word that that has incredible meaning um and has real importance and yet we, again, don't really have a shared understanding of, of the word intent. So, uh, so, so rather than kind of saying, I'm trying to determine where other people are empathetic, um, I've instead always tried to turn it on me and looked at the situation. And this is why I think defining empathy 
for yourself is critical. Because if you can't identify, if you can't define a word like empathy or a word like love, um, a word like God um, yeah. for yourself, then being able to have that quality is, is going to be um, very, very difficult. So I, if you, if I'd like to give my, my thought on, I guess on empathy, because um, it came up yesterday, actually chatting with my, um, with my folks. Um, we were kind of having a, a conversation that, that, that kind of led to this. And I've been really trying to pin down. Um, <laughs> I've been trying to get to the root core of, of, of humanity's problems. That's the, just in my spare time, just trying to solve the world's problems is what I'm trying to do. Um, As we all do in the shower. That's it. Right. That's right. That's right. That's <laughs> or you could just water. go my way and say, eh, there's no problems. Yeah, no, no, no problems whatsoever. Yeah, no problems. So, so, so there was one line I had in the, in the old get in that guilt episode. I said something about, you know, despite everything I've seen, um, I, I, you know, I believe that uh, people are ultimately good. Right. And I've kind of come off that a little bit. I'm actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's bad. That's a position you should hold on to a little bit. No, no, no. I definitely I'm, think that same way. You should hold on to that. People I, are I, good. I, what about I, the I, difference between. Matt, when you did the one that Jen, Glenn just, you know, the one that was just re-released and the shame one that you did. I, so I, I can only. a big. Oh, gosh. Change <laughs> since yeah, between so those two. The change is, is um, it couldn't, couldn't, I'm a different person today. It seemed person. like it. I mean, Literally, yeah. there, there, there's, there's nothing about my life that looks like it did seven years ago. Um, yeah. But I was. Um, I, I, do, I, and I'll tell you why I, I, I hold the opinion that the core problem with our society today is extreme low empathy. I do think that, that we're, we're getting to the root cause of, um, all of our, of, of why we have an increased level of disease, um, disconnection and dissatisfaction. And, um, we, and we do, and it is tied to low empathy. And, and I think I can explain, I think I understand um, both um, the manifestation of that and where the root cause, and it comes, again, comes to this low empathy thing. So, so first, what does that mean? What is em empathy for me? I'm defining this for Matt Long and how I apply it in my life and how I try to communicate it to the people that actually matter, which means people that I have impact on and that have impact on me. And it really comes down to this. I think humans are very, very, um, you know, there was a line I used to use. It was what we're, um, you know, we're, we're uh, complex and subtle beings dealing with complex and subtle problems in a world that's incapable of either complexity or subtlety. And I thought that was pretty pithy before, but I've kind of come to kind of a little more simple than that. And I've decided, no, we're extremely simple beings and we're very binary and we complicate the simplicity of it too much. We overcomplicate um, our lives. And so um, in trying to deconstruct um, or, or maybe be, be a little reductive to, under, to see if that's, that's true, this is what I've come, come to, at least from in, in me from my life as it relates to empathy, is that I am either in one state or another to other living things. And those states are this. Either I approach other living things from a position of zero-sum game, scarcity, and competition, 
or from a principle of sustainable abundance and humanity. And <clears throat> for me, the idea of competition or scarcity can be applicable in so many, so many different inputs determine that. And this is why I don't like empathy as an on-off switch. Uh, because, you know, a lot of people say, well, I have empathy for my children. Well, maybe you have empathy for your children in this particular context with these different inputs with, you know, these, these things. So again, the, my, my, the question I have is, is do I feel like I'm in competition with another person? Do I feel that there's some, you know, that, that, Something is scarce. And let me give a really quick example that came up recently um, that, that I think happens all the time, um, which is spouses, parents, <clears throat> and they're either attention and love for children. And there's, there's sometimes this view of, well, that child loves my spouse more than me. And there's this competition between the spouse for the love of a child or the attention, you know, the, these types of things. Um, and those, when I see that happening, um, and I just, I've seen that this, this, this particular thing happen just, just this week in a couple different, different contexts. Um, when I see that happening, I see um, that's not a place of empathy. You're not coming to a place of empathy for your spouse or for your child because you now are approaching both of them as if there's their, the, the love um, is, is scarce. Now, example that we really see that happen is in divorce situations. When now you have child custody issues where there is something that is scarce and that now you're competing for, and that's time, that's access. When, this, when the split happens, there is necessarily a scarce amount of time um, and, and, and access to children um, in a divorce. So, so I understand in, those, in that context why there is conflict, why there is um, you know, some, not a lot of empathy in that particular situation. But I think if you apply that, we take that scenario in, or, or, or at least for, for me, when I start looking at people in my life, both historically, currently, um, I really can see where that approach of seeing other people as um, competitors and seeing whatever thing I'm ha I, I would like to, to have as being scarce tends to be when I'm particularly low, low, have low empathy um, or, or no uh, empathy, because when I'm in competition, that other, that other individual now becomes, um, uh, they become disposable, they become some, you know, that, that's someone I can either take advantage of, um, you know, and again, it can, it can be in any context, it can be in any people, there's a number of different things that'll make, um, you know, make that kind of be the case. So for me, that's what that means. And, and um, the, the, the connection to that, or my, my connection to that is that, that there are, um, there's a class of kind of traditionally low, em uh, low empathy people. You have psychopaths, you have sociopaths, um, and you have a third, you have a, a third class I'll, I'll get into in a second. But the difference between psychopaths and sociopaths has to do with um, you know, there, there, there's, there's some organic biological, um, you know, presence of, um, you know, when a, when a, of, of a psychopath, for example, but it's not just, uh, it's not just a, um, you know, a nature thing. There's a nurture part of it is that psychopaths to be kind of opened up, experience severe, um, trauma as a young kid. 
right? You're talking abandonment by parents, um, physical abuse, neglect, these types of things. Well, it makes sense that if a, if a person has inherited, um, you know, the, these traits, these markers in, 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 their, in their being that get kind of opened up and unleashed, uh, this low, these low empathy responses from, um, you know, abuse at a young age, that they were passed these psychopathic tendencies from one of their parents, the likelihood of the parent being a shit at an early age is really, really high. So it's rare, it's rarer for a person that has these, these kind of psychopathic tendencies to not experience fairly significant um, tragedy um, a real, real serious adverse childhood experience at a young age, and then that cycle is perpetuated. Now, sociopath is, is, a, is someone who is able to have more development, more healthy, um, safe uh, development, and, but then get to a place where the social input, you know, the, the tragedy, the, the adverse experience, the, the real bad thing happens, and now that, that low empathy response that's a survival um, response kind of kicks in. And so again, there's low empathy that is a result of that tragedy. Now, let's go further. Um, there, uh, there are uh, the, the concept of borderline personality disorder. Um, that is a, again, th what, what that is is somebody who's going to have low empathy. The ability for outsiders to understand whether or not somebody is a psychopath or a sociopath or has borderline personality disorder is going to be very difficult to distinguish. But what you're going to see with all of those um, you know, individuals that kind of hit, hit, fall into that class is the same response, the same reaction to other people. And that is to, to not be able to, to be in competition with another person, um, with, with other people, and to, to never feel, um, you know, to, to, to not, to not, feel to not see um see other people's perspective but it's really this competition where if you feel in order to survive in order to operate in the world other people can't have if i'm gonna have and so other people become means to an end um rather than becoming you know um beings that we can connect with in healthy and sustainable way. So the borderline personality, the reason why I didn't identify that because I wanted to get through that, um, the it, individuals who experience severe um, um, abuse and particularly uh, persistent uh, sexual abuse have high rates of borderline personality disorder. So now these are individuals who don't have those kind of markers that, that the psychopath or the sociopath would have. Um, they would be, you know, typically developing. Um, but the, the tragedies that they experience is so great that they, by, again, by a survival, um, it's a survival mechanism to see other people as things I cannot trust, other, thing, other beings, these other living things just fucking hurt me. And so it's very, it's understandable and it's expected to then react to other beings as competitors, low empathy, and, and, and those things. So for me, I see a lot of all the, any way where I feel, for whatever reason, I'm in competition for another living being. And if I am, I try to see what is in me to cause that, rather than what can the other person do to stop being in competition with me? Oh, they can give me money. 
Oh, they can give me sex. Oh, they can do the thing that I want to do. They will watch the movie that I want. They will like the movie that I want. They will change their behavior. That's most people's reaction, even if they're healthy, even if they don't have these experience, you know, these, these tragedies. Now we just have people who are, um, we have people who are low empathy to strangers, foreigners, people who are outside of my family, outside of my tribe. So, so we don't just have the people who, you know, are traditionally, you know, these, these are inflammatory words I'm using, right? Psychopath, sociopath, borderline personality. These are strong terms. Well, let's not use that. Let's just say any individual that now views another person in competition and um, you, you get there. A little bit more. You, anyone can jump in and cut up. But, I've been, but tra- Tracy, Tracy put her hand up. Uh, I did. That time purposely. Do any of those three groups feel guilt, though? No. Well, that's what I. Yeah. They don't feel guilt for what they do, right? I don't. I don't think we can say that. I mean, I've I've talked to people that I um, that I think are are. I've talked to people that I've been very confident are either sociopaths um, or borderline personality disorder that recognize the problem that they have. They recognize that they have created, um, they have done things that have um, destroyed relationships. So yeah, I, I, I think they do have guilt. The, it's, it's that the survival- You can't response, relate to it? Well, the, the survival response is too strong. It's okay. too strong. It's been, it's been a habit for so long that that's all you know. Well, my understanding is, is it's like everything else, even like- uh, uh, sexuality, the Kinsey scale, it, the, everything's a spectrum, right? There's, it's not an on or off. Yes. They don't feel all, you know, no guilt to some guilt to all it, guilt or whatever it is, or empathy. Yeah, it depends on the context, the person, but, the in, all the inputs that. Yeah. Could, it's, it's, uh, it's a complex thing. It's not, there's not an easy answer. I mean, I guess there is an easy answer for some, but. Well, well so, so, um, but, I, but I, as, as I, again, I was looking at the root, Pro, what is the problem with humanity? And everybody goes to, dun, 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 I'm going to say it, Tom. I'm going to fucking say it. Don't say it. Trump. Wait, say it. Trump. Trump. <laughs> Trump. <laughs> everybody goes there, right? Everybody goes to these divisions. And the reality is, is uh, at least my observation is, is my description of, of what empathy is, is that we have, um, we, we've, you know, it, it, it used to be, um, you know, it's, it's just, so there's uh, the, the idea of love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemy um, has taken a real, real meaning related to this um, because I've, I've, I've uh, stumbled into this, this, this cat uh, uh, named Eric Fromm. Uh, he was a psychologist um, it, worth, worth looking at. He's got a few books. And one of the things he has um, is a book on um, the old, his, his, his Old Testament analysis. Um, and it's really interesting to have this, this, um, uh, Jewish, um, this German, he, so he was born in, born in Germany in, in like 1900s, 1901. Um, and he fucked off before the, um, you know, the Holocaust. Um, but he, uh, uh you know, psychologists that started getting into what was kind of the precursor to, um, you know, some, some, some other psychological concepts that, that were built off of that, uh, off of him and, and, um, and he, his, his, 
his one concept is, you know, there's the difference between being and having. So he talks about, you know, you can either be, you can, you can, you know, get, you get to a place of, you know, he's talking about basically kind of some of this new age, you know, Buddhist kind of be one, be present in a psychological concept versus having versus consuming. But so um, I got into his um, biblical analysis and um, he was talking about this concept of, um, uh, you know, love your neighbor versus love your enemy. And that the real meaning with that, it's just, it's completely misunderstood. It's saying, um, and, and, and he talks about the, uh, the Leviticus interpretation where he basically says the same thing because he doesn't mention the Jesus stuff, but I'm going to, um, because it's the same thing, is there was, you know, what's the definition of neighbor? What does this word mean? Is your, is your neighbor your friend? Is it your tribe member? Is it your family member? But he drilled down and said, no, the, the, the charge in, in Leviticus is very, you know, very similar to the charge in the New Testament, which is, no, you must, love your, um, you must love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemy. And what that means is um, love those people that are in your tribe and love the, love the stranger. And, and rather than enemy, it just means this is a foreigner. This is a stranger. This is someone who otherwise wouldn't be part of um, my tribe. I see it as saying there's no reason for you to be in competition. You are not in competition with a stranger, with a foreigner, with somebody that's not, um, you know, your tribe or your family member. And that really, really resonated with me and helped me kind of get to this place of, of, of viewing of whether or not we view other individuals as, um, as, as strangers or in competition with. Now, the old phrase of, you know, me against my brother. Me and my brother against my cousin. Me, my brother, and cousin against everyone else, right? That's the, the idea of tribalism. But we've gotten to 2019 where now the strangers may be people in our own families, right? We, now we, have, um, we are in competition, not based on um, origin, but on ideology. And so now I'm in competition with my folks or my, in some cases, my children, some cases, my, my brothers and sisters, because we no longer share ideology. I am a stranger to them. They are a stranger to me. So, so, so we see that happening, not just in the religious context, but in the political context, where we can look at other family members, other people who traditionally would have been neighbors, friends, family members, and we say, no they bad and they can't have if, if they must not have and now there's this competition of um of ideology so that's the, that's something that i'm constantly um thinking about um again am i in competition with other people and for what reason and i see that in the ex-mormon context you know, we, we're, we're very kumbaya in, in, in words. Let's build bridges. We all need to just get along. Okay. And, no, no, no. And yet, the very people that say those things are the people that put themselves in competition and view um, that there is scarcity of whatever thing um, they're doing. And, and, and so, um, anyway, I, I look at that. And, and I'm always asking myself, do I see that I'm in competition with um, somebody else? Preaching over. That's all I got. That's it. That's it. I've blown my load on. on, on, um, <laughs> on uh, that was a load. That's all I got. That was a lot. That was a lot. That was a lot. That was a lot. Everybody bring a towel. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing. Yeah. That's for me. Yeah. 
that's for me. Yeah. And everybody else can fuck off. Yeah. So, so you, you asked me earlier, my definition of empathy. And I, I was thinking about that as you were talking about um, looking at things as either competition or abundance. And I, 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 I like, I like that framework. It, it, it reminded me that in that Brene Brown clip, she does gloss over it really quickly, but she gives like four really quick definitions for what she means by empathy. And one of them is non-judge being non-judgmental. So like not judging. And for, for some reason there, se- there seems to be a connection to me between judgment and competition. Whereas if, if you're able to just accept any kind of difference without judgment, then it's more of like a place of abundance than um, if, if, if you're judging and going, this is good, that's bad, and I'm just going to take the good portions, that there's more scarcity or competition there. I, I don't know, but I, I, as, as I've focused on this empathy idea from the Brene Brown thing, and, and I, there, there are some people that I work with that have been bringing it up, and that, that's why I included it in the introduction to this thing in guilt because it came up for me recently with some other people that I work with. This idea of being non-judgmental has been really intriguing to me and uh, a, a, a difficult mystery to try and engage in. <laughs> what does that mean? Like you're, you're trying to tackle the non-judgmental how, how parts of like, yourself? Like, I mean, kind of like how Matt was doing, like the kumbaya thing. Like yeah. I like the idea of being non-judgmental. I don't know how to do it. What do you I've mean? Don't judge. Nobody knows how to do the non. Well, but it, but especially like everybody's with, judgmental, right? But 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 especially when you're trying to empathize with somebody else's feelings, and 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 so if they're feeling a certain way, are you going? Oh well, it's because they did something wrong. So so not judging would take that question out, and it, it doesn't matter if they did something wrong or they did something right, judgment has nothing to do with it. I'm just going to feel these feelings, let them feel these feelings and kind of validate that they're feeling. I think that's what that means. But as, well, as far as to, applying it. Doesn't it go to, it's just what you said. Well, they did something wrong. Mm-hmm. That assumes you have exactly. enough data points to be able to say, Oh yeah, that's wrong. Yeah. You know, versus, you know, it's, it, I, I love the idea of, you know, or, uh, you know, when people talk about, um, you know, uh, 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 you know, whether somebody did something, I, I love this. I love what we do in our, in our culture is where we all, um, litigate very, very complicated factual scenarios to determine, did they do it? And a great example is, did he, did he kill that person? Well, yeah, but that was in self-defense because that other person came after him with a gun and with a, there's, there's this, there's this amazing um, uh, Alt J Alt J video breeze blocks. Anyone an Alt J fan? Come on, the Come music. On. Yeah, music. Alt J. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. yeah, yeah. And it it the video's done in the memento style and backwards, and it that that it's a lesson in perspective. And Memento does that, you know, a a really good, it was, is that Christopher Nolan back in the, yeah, right. There was a movie in night, like in 1953 called prior to the Batman's. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
But, but that's an example of that is it's, if, if, you know, you get to a certain point, you're like, oh, okay, I have enough data points to draw conclusions. That person bad, that person good. And then you're like, oh, shit, that completely changed it. That person bad, that person good. Oh, shit, they're both bad. Oh, shit. It's that whole thing. I've, I've had enough of those situations where that's where that yeah. judgment thing comes in, Glenn, is, is I'm not going to draw conclusions of this, this idea of bad, good, because now you're moralizing. Well, right? and it also sounds like you were saying that you need, you need to have a full set of data points. And, and if you recognize there, there's probably things going on that I don't have any clue about. So I'm really in no position to make a judgment on it. I'm just going to kind of like step back and I, then I don't know what you do when you step back. You just like accept that it is what it is. And that just well, sounds like a, what, what, what does it matter? So what does it mean? <clears throat> judgment to me, judgment means now there's going to be some action and response. There's going to be either some punishment. There's going to be, um, so, you know, so you, so you talk about judgment. Yeah. I go around all the time trying to draw a conclusion, being like, Oh, this person, this, this person, that, this person, that, but then I don't do anything about it. It's not like I'm going to, you know, get up and, and, and have that take up any more time. Um, even though I've drawn conclusions of what somebody else did now, if it's, if it's my kids, if it's my spouse, um, if it's my, you know, my, 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 you know, people that I work with, um, you know, if it's, if it's, yeah, if it's it's people I have to interact professionally that impact me, I may, you know, I may have to react or actually do something, um, based on that judgment call. But, you know, the, the, the amount of time that's spent in adjudicating online, you know, the um, actions of, of, of some person in Walmart and whether or not, you know, we, there's just, there's a lot of, we, we do a lot of that. That to me is wasted energy um, and wasted attention that, that really we might as well just be talking about whether or not Justice League is a good movie. Uh, minute by minute. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I, I just don't understand why this sounds so complicated. <laughs> Like if you're practicing self-awareness and if you feel yourself getting judgy, right. Stop. And then feed off the other person. Even if you need to explain like, man, I, I kind of want to tell you what I feel like you're doing wrong in this scenario. And I don't know, that's where dialogue and doing the back and forth and can be really productive. So I like it. It depends on who you're, who well, are you talking of course to? It, of course it does. Yeah. But, that's like, what I mean. but I'm saying to people who I love, people who I interact with, I, I have, I feel pretty strongly. I've, I've eliminated judgment in my life. I mean, that's a bold claim, but yeah, I was going to say, really dude, for reals. There's no way you've eliminated judgment in your life. I'm sorry. Everybody is judgmental. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm Tracy, sorry. that your lived experience isn't as enlightened as mine. I apologize for that. But I'm very happy that you're so comfortable understanding no, my lived experiences. I'd no, like I, I'm not. I'm yeah. not. I'm totally not. I'm just saying everybody is a little bit judgmental. Yeah. That's just the way it is. That's why I see somebody walking down the street. Maybe they're not dressed really nice. They oh, look no, no, no. kind of homeless. Strangers all you day kind of, <laughs> yeah. Right. I put but all with your family. Judgment. It's different, right? That's what, what I'm saying is I put yeah. all my judgment into people that I don't know. You know, the Kardashians, <laughs> the, you know, the, I hate the, the fucking Kardashians, right? So. <laughs> I'm judgmental as hell there. What I said is I, I am getting, I feel very comfortable that I have, have um, virtually eliminated judgment 
as it relates to my spouse and to my and and to my children. Um, ah. That's what that's what I'm saying. And that's good. That's and, awesome. It really is, and it's changed. It it's fundamentally changed our our intimacy, our vulnerability, our connection, our ability to communicate. So this is, it's not just giving lip service. It's buy your fruits. Um, yeah. You know, my, 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 my children are my best friends. You know, a few years ago, I, I was telling somebody that, boy, I think one of my problems is that I just have a bunch of ex-Mormons friends, a bunch, bunch of ex-Mormon friends. And the reality is, is it makes no sense that that's the thing that would cause us to be friends. Is there a better way to find friends? And it turned out there is a better way um, to find friends. Be really, really kind and open to your kids and let them get to a place where they're no longer just like young, annoying um, <laughs> shits, basically. So let them develop, but help them develop to a, to a place. And then you've actually bred your own um, cool little, cool little friends. So that's, that's the Michael I'm, Scott method. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I could get there with my in-laws yeah. and their children. So if you're there, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah I, and I would have not thought it possible three years ago. Um, but it required me, you know, so, so, so it came back kind of this thing of guilt. It actually caused me to spend time with my own guilt um, and my own low and the way I have been, um, because, because the one, the one variable that I think is huge, um, about empathy, probably more than any other is time and development. So the, uh, the reason why I kind of focus on these, these, um, some of these psychological, um, uh, thinkers, um, especially, um, Abraham Maslow, um, Jean Piaget and Robert Keegan, um, is because they all are talking about, um, human development. And so, what I've learned is, well, em empathy is a form of human development, right? Children don't, <laughs> you know, they aren't able to be very empathetic because everything is their universe. Mine, mine, mine. The problem is, is we get 45-year-olds that are two-year-olds. Mine, mine, mine. They've not developed. And so I, I've looked back at my lack of development, and I do believe my, my, um, uh, my, my, my religious upbringing has stunted me, it stunted my develop, development in, real, in substantial ways. Sure. In the ways that I was, had low empathy towards my children and the way I caused them substantial harm. And so it was the realization of that to say, now I'm not doing that anymore. That was the first thing. The second thing was sitting down with my children and saying, hey, guess what? Your dad has no idea what he's doing. And it turned out he's never really know, known what he's doing. And because of that, he's fucked up in real and substantial ways to you. And here's how. Well, that could be really good or detrimental depending on where, where they're at. But, yeah. I, well, I disagree, Tom. There is, never, there is never a time where it is inappropriate or maladaptive to tell another person to, to your child, your own child, your own child to explain to them where you um, failed them and acknowledging that and I making a commitment not to. I see no scenario where that where that can ever be um, destructive. 
All right. Well, I guess we will have to disagree on that, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I was thinking. Maybe you should uh, go talk to a therapist, aren't we? Man, maybe you should go talk to a therapist. <laughs> so, so I was, I was listening to the, the, one of the world's greatest philosophers, uh, Bill Burr, today. And <laughs> so I got to interrupt you because I, I got a mea culpa, Tom. Oh, I'm yeah. Awesome. I hate Bill Burr. Dude, I've really dug into him, and I really have now an appreciation for him. Mia culpa is not satisfactory enough. I think you're going to have to do some groveling. I'd like to um, demonstrate that I showed incredible low empathy to you about this issue. No shit. Judgmental avenues where you were driving it down. I was wrong. So go on with your Bill Burr. Okay. Anyway. Serious, bro. So he was talking today, I think on his most recent podcast, he was talking about how, because he, he's now a parent of a, of a young child, and he, and he was saying that, you know, the people who we were 10, 15, 30, 40 years ago, however old it was, he says, we're not those people anymore. And so when you're raising a child, the baggage that you bring to your child is of your own doing. You're a parent all of your childhood baggage, all the stuff that all the trauma, all that stuff should not play a part in your new parental role or even your new relationship or whatever it is. It does. It seeps through, but it's your job to make sure that you're now fulfilling this new role you have. And then he brought in this example of going to a high school reunion. He's like, if you ever want to see what it's like to see what you were back then or, and then the judgment that you have on others and, and all that stuff, go to a high school reunion, see how that works out for you. And it was interesting to me to think, yeah, that that's a really good case study in judgment going to a high school reunion and then seeing some of your old friends and all that triggered stuff like, oh, there's that shithead that used to bully me. And, oh, there's that girl that wouldn't give me the time of day or whatever it was. But these people are completely different. Just like what you said, Matt. You're set, I mean, from seven years ago, you're completely different. You know, 20 years. But if you look at like a 20-year high school reunion, I mean, these people, they might have like just – Eensy little slivers of who they were in high school, but mostly not. And so that's why I think it's funny that, you know, from the most part, the people that go to these high school reunions and then kind of relive those glory days or whatever it was, what a bunch of assholes. Come on, man. Okay, you're, you're totally, yeah. Now yeah. who's driving down judgmental boulevard? Yeah. Everybody hold on, get your seatbelts on. We're going down judgmental <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> I always held that it was the it was you can ju- you can really compare and contrast the ten year anniversary or the, yeah the ten year reunion from the twenty year reunion that it, the ten year I've never gone to any so yeah I didn't go to I didn't go to my ten year I did go to my twenty you um, did Ooh. yeah and and I, I again the 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 idea that at, at ten years in there's a lot of that judgmental but by twenty it's like or the at the twenty year reunion it's like enough people have been kind of beaten down by life enough to be like, Oh shit. Yeah. That no, that really doesn't matter. And my experience at the 20 year reunion is, um, it was just a bunch of adults kind of realized just, just, um, um, I, I didn't experience the whole judgment thing. There were people there that, that, um, you know, you would expect some of that. And I didn't see a whole, you know, as, as much of that, but I think your points points well taken. <laughs> you didn't, you didn't, at some point when you're all 70 years old you think everyone would be like fuck that guy i think everyone would be like we're alive 
we're alive. Or, or or you're all talking about the people that aren't alive anymore. <laughs> yeah, right. One of the two. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so Matt, when you went to your 20 year reunion, I'm curious, like when I when I went, I had four kids, one in high school, all my friends like were having their first baby. Oh yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. There was a there was definitely a mixed uh a mixed bag or maybe it's self-selecting it's that the ones that go in their 20s that the 20 year or even at the 10 are at least comfortable enough with their life and kind of successful like i'm all, i'm all right to be seen and and talk to and what you do is you just deselect all those who just feel unworthy or whatever so you know, you know it's interesting thinking back i mean i still feel guilt for uh my mission i still feel guilt for a lot of the things I did when I was a Mormon, I mean, it's, it's, I look at it like the entire thing or just, just the proselyting or something else. Well, obviously I can't just put a blanket on it, say the whole thing, but. Oh, come on, list it. (laughs) Good, good. (laughs) Sit down to pee and he regrets doing that more times than he. Because I still do it now, just out of habit. habit. (laughs) You feel guilty every time you, you pee standing up. (laughs) <laughs> no, I, but like the people that I was so earnest, in fact, I, I remember writing this big paper when I was first going through my crisis of faith about a guy who I ran into who went through his own crisis of faith. And I was like the elders quorum president or something like that. And I went there bearing my testimony, like really working really hard. Like I'm going to beat this guy right over the head with the spirit. Watch this. He's, he's going to convert for sure. And <laughs> And then after the fact, after I have my own crisis, like I went through this weird thing where I'm like, oh my God, I cannot believe I did that. And I hated myself for doing that to that poor guy because now I'm in his shoes and I'm like, I don't want some, you know, you know, glowy eyed elders corn president come over to me and like, oh, I'm going to bang him over the head with the spirit. Watch this. I was like, I was that guy that sucked. Why did I do that? And so, yeah, I was, I was like, Wow, what a what a dumbass dick I was, <laughs> you know. And that's that's why I'm like, I hope I'm different. I hope I'm not like just a different kind of dick now. I don't know. You're different. Tom. Okay, no. good. I'm, that's all I want to be is different. I mean, the gonna, same. I'll, I'll validate but different. you on that one. Okay, thanks, buddy. I'm just gonna climb down in the hole and sit with you and empathize with you. <laughs> just validate that my guilt. Kid. Feels hard, Tim or Tom. Tim. <laughs> at, least at least you're not a Tim. Yeah, that could be worse. There's nothing worse than the person that bears their heart and soul testimony to you, thinking it's going to change every view you have. Yeah. you got to sit there and go, yeah, nothing. Yeah, it makes sense. And they're like, I prayed, I did everything, and then they walk away thinking you're the asshole because you didn't understand it. That's the worst. I I was wondering if somebody bore their testimony to me, but I like was able to ask them, but like, what, like, what you like, what you like about the church? Not, not like what's good about the church, but like what you like. That would require a, a strong sense of getting a genuine answer. And that takes time and it takes work and it takes, getting to know them. Like when I was having the missionaries over, I mean, how, did, how many times did I meet with those guys? Like four or five long different meetings. Such a long suffering. Dude. Yeah. Matt's gone through that same shit too. Yeah. So, 
even though I tried to build a rapport <laughs> so I could get to a place where I felt like they trusted me or that we could, we could have some genuine moments, it still didn't work. Because at the, at the end of the day, they have a job to do. And I'm a client. So, so yeah. I mean, yeah. this, this has been my, uh, probably my biggest shift in, 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 in empathy, really, um, as well. Because once I started um, demonstrating more empathy to my children, that bled over into more empathy to my, um, to my dad. Uh, because having the conversation with my kids about, look, dude, here's, I, I yelled, man, and it, it, I know that affected you. And we, we, you know, me and my, me and my boy um, we've had, had those conversations. That started me down this road of really trying to think of my dad and the ways that I have, I've been focusing on how I perceived he, he failed me, um, you know, especially as it relates to our, our, our religious differences. And in spending time with that, I got a little bit more into the mind of a, of a father of a, an adult child as, as my, my kids started to become adults. And I started really thinking about trying, not trying to, I started thinking about his life and he, he, um, his, his parents died when he was um, 19 and 20. He was a convert at 18, went on a mission and then his folks died. Well, he had a sister that was married. Um, but I then understood that the church became his nuclear family at 18, 19, 20, he wasn't even fully developed at 25 and he tragically lost you know, both parents within, within the, 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 the span of a year. So in understanding, and at least he's coming to an understanding of how the church saved him and how the church was so necessary to him in his development and how because he didn't have a father, because he didn't have other um, individuals, that framework became the framework for how to be a, a parent and how to be a dad. And as I went through that, what I, what I started to experience was incredible gratitude that the church was there for him at that time. Incredible gratitude um, at all the ways that it helped my dad, who, who going through that could have resulted in incredible other tragedies and, and, and destructive and dangerous behaviors, but that ultimately he was a, he is a good dad. He loved me. He, in his way, communicated that love. It was whether or not I was willing to accept that and perceive that when the last seven years, the last 10 years, I was mired in our competition. No, you must see things I, the way I do. So I, it was, it's, it's, it's this, where am I doing, doing the same thing that, um, you know, that we claim and that, that often Mormons and, and other religious people do. So that allowed me to not just change my approach to my father, but it really changed my approach to the church generally. So rather than seeing it as a monolith of, we must, come on guys, we all gotta get out of this. Come on, let's quit the gym, come on. It's, I accept, I know. Let me testify for a second. Oh testify. God, yeah, please. I know. Now let him go. <laughs> I know that the Mormon church is true for some people. And I know that the Mormon church is adaptive for some people. 
I know that. Of course. No, it was for my father. And so that, that allowed me to expand my empathy again, not just to my father, but to other strangers who I would have previously said, eh, they're sheeple, eh, fucking Mormons, eh, blah, blah, blah. So that was one real tangible example that has allowed me to no longer have um, the, uh, the level of anger, hate, di- just disconnection, um, you know, from, from, from the church. Now that pops up a lot and it well, pops up very specific situations, but again, it's not a monolith and it can't be. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that you uh, finally listened to your mentor, Brene Brown and took the skill set that she's been trying to teach you all this time of being empathetic. I mean, I've gone through her books like seven times. You'd think it would permeate at some point. Yeah, you'd think that instead of her being a hack, she's actually got some wise wisdom for you. But nah, she's a hack. After <laughs> <laughs> your sympathy, that's it. I've said nothing. <laughs> Let me read your book for an eighth time. Yeah, I'll just use vague words, and people's confirmation bias will make them think I'm brilliant. Um, Matt. Say, oh, sorry. Yeah. So you remember the episode you did? And I'm sorry if my mic's yeah, not awesome. very good. But the episode you did where you gave your father a blessing. I do. Okay. I literally listened to that episode and sobbed. Because I wished I could have done that for my dad. But I'm a female. I couldn't. Right. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful for you to reach across. And show him that love. Just very touching. Thank you. <laughs> um, that was the breaking point. Because I think I told him my story. And what led up to that was almost a physical fight. Over fucking words, man. Yeah. Over words. Fucking words. <laughs> but it was beautiful. Yeah. It was beautiful what you did for him and what he received from it. And I have a very true believing father that I wish I could do that for him. But it's just an understanding. It's like you said, words. Yeah. To us, it's words. To them, it's pure emotion. Well, um, so I appreciate it. I really, really do. Cause, um, it was, it was, it was hard to put that out there because it was, uh, you know, it was pretty, pretty vulnerable. Right. Um, but I'm so glad you did. Uh, I'm, I'm for the first time, I, I'm glad I did right now. <laughs> so thank you. Good. Good. Um, the, the, so last night we had a, I had a conversation with my, my dad and we just been really, we were talking about this. We were talking about conflict. We were talking about competition, kind of getting down to there. But I, rather than using the terms that this is, again, this is why I play with language is I've just yeah. decided to use words like pray instead of meditate. I've decided to use words like guy, like, um, God instead of, you know, some of the, the other concepts that, that I use. And, you know, my, I have, I have a very clear, um, uh, a very clear uh, belief system now as it relates to, um, I guess, we, we, I'm going to say science. Um, but the more I've just, just gone back to using the language that my dad's comfortable with, the more we're now talking about concepts. 
Um, and it gets to the point where it's almost as if he, he I start spitting my, my philosophy on things. And he's like, yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Because I've given him permission to use his language, God, prayer, yeah. our father in heaven, rather than, Oh, well, you father in heaven. And you think it's a, it's a, a corporeal being really that's stupid dad. You think they talk to talk to men? That's stupid, Dad. Yeah. We no, I understand that. The burning in the bosom, mm-hmm. which for me is connecting to to the heartbeat, connecting to the body. You know, that's what my medit- you know, mindfulness meditation kind of is, is, has led me to. But I can talk about prayer, um, and, and in fact, but because the study because the studies on mindfulness is just so overwhelming. Um, you know, that, 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 how about this? I, I, I don't believe in shoulds, right? There's this great, there's this great song by Wookie foot. It says, uh, you know, don't drop your shoulds on, on me and I won't should on you. Um, <laughs> everyone should be meditating and trying to do some form of mindfulness. Right. That is just the research and the studies on uh, mental health, on physical health, on staving off dementia, on, um, healing traumas. It, the, the, all the disciplines are, the answer is uh, very, that's a, it's an important tool to, for a lot of people. Now, so because of that, um, I have a lot of clients that come to me, um, you know, in the throes of um, incredible tragedy, incredible trauma. And so um, when, when people talk about, um, you know, being religious and, you know, I'm trying to pray in this, I'll, I'll talk to them a little bit about prayer and really try to emphasize the mindfulness meditation component um, of that, because really prayer is a subset of mindfulness. It's, it's another application of that. And so rather than saying, oh, there is one way to find mindfulness, um, you know, and it's this way, it's, it's through transcendental meditation and you must sit and you must ohm and you must use the Tibetan uh, singing bowls and that's how it must be. I say, no, man, if what you got is prayer, that can be an invaluable tool towards mindfulness so again language concepts and tr- again trying to build bridges rather than um burn them burn them the fuck down because don't forget the kumbaya there yeah. matt but 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 it, it, no. it, it, it does go back to what you first said to, to me about um words being symbols and the the religious beliefs like the concept of god being a corporal being the the act of praying whenever somebody comes um with, with these symbols that they're trying to represent something that they're connected to what, what I've been trying to do for a long time actually is to look past the differences between their symbols and my symbols and kind of see what is it that we're, what is it that we're still, that we have in common in there. And I, I think, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I want to say thank you, Tracy, for bringing that up about your reaction to, to that episode where Matt told the story about his, his dad, because that, 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 that emotion that you felt that I felt that Matt felt, I think pretty much everybody here felt was a real thing that we could feel when we're talking about empathy, regardless of the differences in words, the differences in beliefs, the, you know, the differences that we carry around us. And uh, that, that was just a really beautiful moment to me. So I wanted to say thank you. Thanks. There's been so many emotions with you guys and your podcast. And I've only been here about a year. Yeah. But like your stuff on uh, the Ideogram. Oh, the Enneagram has been helpful to you. Yeah. 
I have looked that stuff up. Yeah. And I'm a solid six. <laughs> okay. And it's, and, you know, it's also told me, you know, don't judge other people because yeah. I've tried to put people in their column and you can't. Yeah. It's not right. And even stuff that Tom's brought out, you know, you're recast on your stuff mm-hmm. has been so helpful for me and relating to my believing members. That's mm. awesome. And I think we can, we can do that more. We can try to relate, not just to believing members, to other people, to strangers, to, um, you know, love, love your enemies. Uh, exactly love love to me love is the ultimate alchemy because it takes so many ingredients to really experience and express love and love for me is a synonym of empathy i see i don't I, i don't distinguish between those those terms i can use those um interchangeably so have empathy for yourself first because empathy really does come from a selfish place. It comes from a place of self-awareness. I'm experiencing something. I'm experiencing this. I'd like to know what other people are experiencing too. And so it comes from a selfish place, right? A place of self-awareness, a place of, and I really mean that, self, selfishness. But then it's moving that to, okay, I have empathy for myself. I have love for myself. I have love for my friends, my loved ones, to then extend, or empathy for, to extend that to empathy for a stranger, a foreigner. Um, I was talking to a, a, um, a, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and kind of I was tell, talking about this this idea of um, um, a stranger, and, and ultimately that, that a stranger is a person who is particularly vulnerable. So in a school setting, children might be strangers. In a, in a legal setting, certain individuals are strangers because they're vulnerable. They don't know how the legal system works. If you're dealing with cops, then you don't, really aren't used to navigating those waters. You're a stranger. You're particularly vulnerable. So to me, the idea of being a foreigner or a stranger is directly tied to one's vulnerability um, in, 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 um, in, a, in a system. Right. It's real easy to look at um, foreigners explicitly. Right. The, 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 you know, again, I'm not going to get into politics. You all, you all understand, people, people understand that, that concept. It's it's the so. So if we talk about what empathy is uh, it, or it might be better to understand what it is not. And to me, what it what it is, is not is viewing another human as less than human. And so now we look at the rhetoric in how we treat foreigners or how we could talk about foreigners, you know, they're dogs, they're animals, you know, the, the, some of the, the infidels, you know, it's just saying a stranger. Yeah. Subhuman. Right. So now you justify treating that stranger differently than you would treat yourself or treat your pride, your, your tribe. And I was explaining kind of this concept mm-hmm. to this guy, um, yesterday and saying where that also comes into place is once you view another person as, you know, as a, this is old animal farm, right? As uh, all animals are um, equal, but some are more equal than others, right? Um, once you successfully do that by 
you know, the, 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 what's the, what's the typical term, othering another, uh, another group or another person, you now justify treating them differently and having different standards than you would for yourself or your, or your people. And, and it comes down to, um, some, again, a kind of adjudication. So I, I'm, I'm always concerned. The reason why I'm concerned with this approach is because, um, you, you know, there, when I say different standards, it, it, again, we see that in, in politics. Uh, people say, mm, you wouldn't hold the, you, if, if the Democrats took that position, would you say that as if that's going to be persuasive? Well, fucking no, because they're not Republicans. Oh, if they were Republican, would you, well, fucking no, because they're not Democrats. I mean, people really are kind of unapologetic um, about that anymore. But let's go to the religious differences, right? Um, we are familiar with situations where if you are in group, you will be judged you will literally be judged differently. There are some, you know, the fact that the concept of repentance and forgiveness is available to in-tribe people, but not out-of-tribe people, right there demonstrates that. No, no, no. For the out-of-tribe people, the only thing we have is jail. Put them in jail. Punish. The in-tribe people, they, they get to have the balm of Gilead. They get to do Hail Marys. Um, they get to not have the sacrament. They, there's other forms of punishment that exist for in-tribe people. It's a, it's, it's, it's a way of this competition of, of having different, um, you know, different standards. And so the, the work that I currently do um, is very easy to do because the people that I, I represent, and I'm, I'm a criminal defense attorney. I also do, um, I do, do personal injury work. So I'm dealing with uh, people who are not, who are dealing with insurance companies and people who are dealing with the criminal justice system. In every situation, the people that I'm representing are strangers in those systems. They're vulnerable. They don't really know how to navigate. They're, they're not uh, built to navigate in those systems. And so that, that application, um, you know, I was explaining this to someone. So um, I just recently was in trial on a uh, first-degree murder case, premeditated murder, and I won. Um, they said, well, how do you feel about that? I said, I feel amazing about that because yes, that person killed someone. They would be viewed as the predator. And, and, and perhaps there's an argument that they were in that context, but in the legal context, that person is the vulnerable, that person is the stranger. And so it became very easy to have empathy for evildoers when I was able to view where they are genuinely vulnerable and genuinely strangers in that particular context. Well, does that mean it was okay that they, no, I can take both positions. This was a bad, this was bad, um, a bad act. This was a horrible thing. This was, you know, um, but in this context, they're worthy of um, empathy because they are vulnerable. Now that's a hard thing for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. And I get not most people, um, have the have had the opportunity or the ability or the the willingness to represent murderers and child molesters and other people who have been who have done and been accused of doing uh, causing real real harm to people and still being able to have love for my enemy love for a person who is a stranger and an empathy for a person who is in that position has helped me really demonstrate empathy and love for myself 
forgive myself for my wrongdoings, change the behavior, and then have real empathy towards other people who don't commit murders or <laughs> cause other crimes and cause real harm to other people. So I can see the level of harm. Anyway, it's, 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 yeah. it's not to say pat my, pat my, fuck it, pat myself on the bat. Yay me. Um, <laughs> no, it's, that's hard to do because I, I've kind of been in that situation. I used to take children that parents were in prison up to visit them. Mm -hmm. And it was, the prison is horrible. Horrible. It's a horrible position. And then you're taking children in to see their parents. And I would sit with them while they talked to their parents. And it was a normal situation for me. Yeah. Even though there was a woman in there that had smuggled in three mayonnaise canisters of meth and she was in jail and she was actually pregnant at the time. And I'm taking her children to see her. It was a normal conversation. You know, how are you doing in school? I, you know, she didn't seem like a criminal to me. Yeah. So you can kind of empathize with these people that they are people with children and families that just made the most disgusting choice ever. Yeah. So I can understand that. I can totally relate to that. It's uh, not as deep as you can. Well, no, if you've done that, you've, you've been boots on ground, front lines. I mean, that's, that's no small thing. I would never, so one of the things I don't do is ever try to um, weigh or categorize the tragedy that somebody experienced and kind of, well, mine's worse than yours. And the other thing I'll never do is say, well, but my level of empathy is higher. No, if you, that's, that's a, a, an example of where, um, you know, I, I look to your example and, and, and say that teaches me and that inspires me in, in different ways, both because of my experience, um, but despite it as well. So truly, thank you for, um, thanks for doing that in your past and having that experience so that I could have just a, just a glimpse of your experience through you. Thanks. Yeah. Um, hey, that nail thing, Glenn, I did want to touch on that for a second. All right. <laughs> that nail thing was funny. Yeah, because I'll tell you my reaction. To my Allie reaction. had some thoughts on that, too. She wrote on the Patreon page, but go ahead, Matt. Yeah, well, I want to hear that then, because maybe it'll. she may have said what I said, and then I'll be like, amen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, go, go ahead, Matt. Oh, I thought Allie was going to go. Oh, I don't know. Um, it was, so I, it was a great example. Oh, Allie's jumped up. Allie. Oh, hi. I am here. I just don't know how to use this thing. So I'll listen to you first. <laughs> All right. Um, so the thing that, that jumped out um, was I was really frustrated with it because I was like, that's the bullshit that, we, that shouldn't be out there. That really reinforces um, shitty behavior. Who was, who was shitty? The, the guy the, was shitty there? Yeah. yeah. And well, the, the, the entire video, the fact that it was done as if to justify shitty behavior with a false example. 
Mm. And that's never, never, never when that type of a conversation happens is the goddamn cause and problem so narrow and so obvious, right? It's like, and, and that was my problem with it is that I think it, all it does is reinforce to small-minded people that see, I am justified. Sometimes I know what the problem is. And if they would just hear me, it's like the nail in the head. Your, your reaction is like the nail in the head. That's what it is. So I think it, the, the video, and because it was clever, um, is such, was such a false example and only causes to reinforce really, really shitty behavior. I don't know about that. I thought I could see the conversation happening between me and my husband because, well, to be female, I'm female, he's male, and he can see a nail coming out of my head. And he would tell me, there's a nail in your head. No, I want you to listen to me, but there's a nail in your head. You know, I could just, I could relate to it between me and my husband. Do do you, do you feel like another person really can accurately um, diagnose that it's a nail in your head and that there's not a myriad other um, inputs, including those that are subconscious and that are unconscious and that just, you you just aren't aware of that really end up being the driving force. (laughs) Maybe if I'm taking it too literally, but if he sees a nail in my head and I'm talking about the pain and he sees the nail in my head, yeah, I think he could tell me there's well, a nail keep, in your head. Yeah, you keep using the same example, though. Have you ever had a nail in your head? Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to need to get no. – I, mean, I would like you to – My problem no. is just that. There is very I, – I submit that – Okay. Allie, maybe you can explain it. it to us better. I think okay. I'll see if I can try. So I saw it differently where, and I didn't see the the clip on it, but um, I don't know if you guys can hear me very well. Yeah, very well. No, we're good. Okay, sorry, I have a dog. Um, I saw it as a dog. That usually means you're a good person. Yeah. Unless you're shitty to your dog, then you're a shitty person. (laughs) No, I'm not. You have a dog and you're shitty to the dog. Very low empathy. You're shitty person. But I'm assuming you're a good person. You have a dog. Never apologize. Um, okay. So I saw it as the nail on the head was someone who was so obviously delusional and it it seems like a person who's just constantly complained and you can only take that so long and then you have to address the issue. So that's, I mean, that's how I saw it was a little bit different Hmm. because you're speaking to a delusional person. I like like the metaphor that way. That's a great perspective. And see, that's kind of how I saw it, too. But you have to see it the way I saw it originally. Because I'm, very <laughs> no, I'm trying to be empathetic here. No, There's I, one I way to see it. The, so they played that clip at my work one time for a training meeting yeah. uh, in financial planning. And they were saying, like, it's, it's really hard sometimes to see something that you know is a problem. But they were like, you'll never get to fix that problem. Or you'll never get to even tell them that there's a nail in their head if you don't just listen and try to understand 
like where, what the pain feels like, when it started, you know, just find out all those other things. So I like that. What I hear you saying is rather than saying, hey, the nail's the problem is empathy is asking questions because you want to know the experience and that is likely to get them to a place of identifying not just maybe that issue, but some of the other issues that are, that are contributing to the nail. Where were they when they got a nail in their head, you know? Gee. Yeah. Well, where's that now? I, I can, uh, I can definitely dig on, uh, yeah. dig on that. Right. I think, I think we're better. We're They're better expanding the problem. Sorry. So much that they don't focus that there's a nail in their head. They're just focusing on all the feelings around it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So you know. I'm going to, I'll disclose something. Well, and there's in financial stuff, there is so much shame about saying there's a nail in your head. I mean, there is mm. so, you think the church, you mean, shame. you mean po- pointing out somebody's problems? Yeah. 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 You got to not say there's a nail in your head. You have to tiptoe around those kinds of things and try to help them figure out for themselves that they've got a nail in their head. And, and there's some places that they totally see it and they're ready. Mm. Um, and, and maybe you're not the right person to help them right. or, you know, somebody else is, you know, because I, whatever it is, it's something you have trouble with. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, um, let me go full circle. The, the, the story yeah. of the delusional and the, and the nail in the head is there's, there are some people that really do like ha- keeping the nail in the head. Yep. The nail, yeah. the nail has been, it, it becomes an identity. And it becomes a weapon that can be used. Remember my nail? You've never had a fucking nail in your head, have you? Yeah, yeah, but you could take it out maybe to heal. No, 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 no. That thing's going to stay there. Ah. I'm going to spend some time with the nail in the head uh, metaphor, having been open and more empathetic to others' perspectives on Yes. No, I, but I think you touch on a, good, on a good thing, Matt, that there are people who can get addicted to this victim mode story and they interpret everything through a a, a victim filter and oh. they deserve love and empathy just like anybody else but that you know that's why i i, I put those videos um to or, or audio clips together because to me they're i i wouldn't say that they're two sides of an extreme but they represent these extremes in me of like because i want to be empathetic i you know i i, I want to give that love but I know that I'm not always that patient to sit with somebody who is constantly rehashing the stuff instead of fixing, if it is an obvious fix, like a nail in the head. But to your point, Matt, that it's not always that obvious. And if I think, oh, it's just this, and I'm not being sensitive to all of these other potential factors, then I'm being a shit. And, yeah. you know, so it's like trying to find a balance with that. And in what cases are you some... a person with the nail in your head? Sure. Oh, always. Or, or a right beam in your eye. I think that's it. Yeah, I think it. That's, that's exactly, exactly right. if someone doesn't want to hear, there's a nail in their head. They just want you to feel the pain of the nail in the head. Yeah, they don't want to hear that you tell them there's a nail in your head. Well, and there's a, there's a you know the a mindfulness um, concept of going really focusing on the pain. No, no, no. Don't avoid it. Let's mm-hmm. go into. Yeah. And let's go further. What happens if it even get wor- gets worse? And really spend time with that. And that allows for a little bit more awareness 
um, to not just the pain, but, but sometimes other things. And then often when we spend a lot of time with that pain and really dig into it and show it and look at it and kind of spit, then we can really um, let it go. It's, I don't it's, know. There was a black episode, a black mirror episode about that. It didn't end up very well for that doctor. I don't remember that. Which Do you remember the, the doctor who he gets this device where he's able to feel the pain of the patients and that's how he diagnoses them. And then he gets uh, addicted to pain. Oh, that's funny. Oh, that sounds fucked up. No, yeah. no, that's great. That's what's see. That's no, time with that, that sounds horrible. Well, it's, it's a really interesting <laughs> episode. The example that I give is, um, is death. Yeah. Um, and, and especially in a, in, in kind of the Mormon context versus the, um, uh, the, well, uh, it's not. It's not fair to, to to just Mormon and on. But um, well, I think Mormons are unique in, in the way they handle de- the, their avoidance of handling death um, and trying to uh, r- really not comfortably just spending time in the grief. Um, and I, I was having a conversation with someone a couple of years ago. After actually, I guess it, maybe it was my um, it was when my mother in law uh, passed um, a few years ago from uh, ALS. Um, and my wife was kind of talking about how um, she's really spent time in that pain and in that grief, and she got comfortable in that place, that, that, that place in her heart, that place in her, in her soul um, of grief and of loss. And that over time, that hole became a, was definitely a hole. That was a loss. It was, was a loss. But it was a place that she was now comfortable in so that she could fill it with love and that she really turned that grief into um, a place of love. And, and that's kind of the, the concept I'm thinking about is, um, you know, spending time with our, go to the, you know, spending time in, in just um, in, in filtering things by being a victim, maybe spend, spend time in that grief, in the tragedy, in the pain, so that you're now comfortable in that place. One of the things I tell people all the time is, we avoid thoughts. We, we, we try to avoid thoughts all the time and, and, and uncomfortable and, and, and painful thoughts. But the, our mind should be the place that we're the most safe and when we're the most comfortable. It should be the, always the, the, the place of, of, of refuge. And for too many of us, it's, it's not. And I struggle with that because my mind um, does, does, weird, does weird stuff as well. Um, but the more I can be comfortable in my, what, what are traditionally negative experiences, spend time with them, look at them, and then put them away. What I've found is, is those, you know, I, I, I turn those scars into souvenirs. And then eventually over time, I'm able to kind of remove those scars, surgically remove those scars. And so then healthy tissue comes in because I've replaced a lot of that cell, those, you know, I've, I've replaced healthy cells, which was previously decaying and corrupting Cells. That's kind of the metaphor that, that I've gone through as it relates to pain and, and um, tragedy. And just recently, I, um, I came to some realizations about an uh, experience I had as a kid um, that I had kind of um, really kind of blocked out. Um, and I told my wife about it, and she just kind of looks at me and she goes, I've been waiting for this. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, really? She goes, yeah, you've, you've been disclosing this for over a decade. Um, and, and, and now I go back and remember things that I've said, but not things that I've said, questions that my wife would ask me when I'd start zeroing in on the issue and how avoidant I was and how I was just blah, blah, blah. And it was till recently that I thought, my goodness, what, 
what a special um, woman I've, what a special woman my father in heaven has blessed me with. There you go. Like my language. Um, Because she saw a nail in my head 10 years ago and had the wisdom and insight to understand drawing attention to it and saying, you've got a fucking nail in your head would have been destructive at that time for me. And I mean, I, she's a, she's a, she's a, she is the teacher. You know, she's, she is a teacher and one of the most empathetic um, people that I've ever experienced and or, or been, <laughs> I've experienced her many times. Um, <laughs> but it was a, it was a great lesson to me of fuck. I don't do that to her. I jump to, ah, there's the nail. I think I see it. And, 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 and I can model those behaviors. Uh, but you're male. I'm male and I'm mad more, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, no, that's a male reaction to point out there's a nail in your head. Cause, cause men are from Mars, right? Kinda. Yeah. <laughs> you got, yeah. I mean, you guys point out the obvious and you know, it's not a flaw. Totally not a flaw. Well, that's I how my husband would be. Yeah. No, it's not. Um, I want to hit Glenn. You hit something I really wanted to dig into at the at, at the time. But I want to go back to it because because I've been, um, you know, as I've been I've been thinking about empathy. You, you you said the two there's there are two different types of empathy. I think this is really important again to identify how complex um, ep- empathy is. It really is kind of a it, you know there's it's alchemy, right? I, I love the idea of, of so many variables. And the, the the thing that I was really persuaded by um, is listening to um, a, a, a couple of ethicists. Uh, I think it was. Um, talking about um, the idea of emotional empathy versus intellectual empathy. And you, you kind of hit on that um, a, a little bit, Glenn, mm-hmm. um, is that the, the re- there's, there's research out there to say that the people that are emotional empaths um, actually do the least amount of, they, there's, there's a least, they have the least amount of um, donations, applications, and actually doing something about that, that they feel so, uh, so acutely, right? Ah, the children, ah, humanity, ah, climate, ah, uh, poverty. It's this, I feel so much. And that it's the having the feeling is like, that's enough. Gosh, I just feel so much. I'm exhausted. Whereas those who, who have um, intellectual um, empathy and, and the person that was talking is somebody who was, I was identified um, on some brain scans as a psychopath. Um, and he, and he'll say, yeah, but I had a, um, healthy, um, you know, safe, um, childhood. So childhood, so I don't have those, um, those, those same expressions. And he was saying that, but I, I identify where I'm intellectually, um, you know, cognitively empathetic in that I really see the beauty and the aesthetics of, um, volunteering at a soup kitchen. I understand where real need is. And so I, um, donate money to these causes. And that was fascinating, um, to me as I've, cause I think, um, just as it's complex, it's alchemy that depending on the inputs, we have the ability to be emotional empaths in certain situations with certain people and intellectual empaths in certain situations and other people and not, and be low empathy, um, as well. And my goal after I heard that was to try to become both 
to try to take if there's a, an instance where I'm having more of an intellectual or or an emotional to try to seek that other side and um, you know combine the the emotional and the cognitive. It's it's another. I mean, the, to me, this is the beginnings of, of again what it is to be um, human, um, which is to blend um, consciousness with the heart, the mind, and the body connection. That's another example of. Um, something that is 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 very much a challenge, and ultimately, uh, come back to what the root problem of humanity is: is the burden of consciousness. That once we become aware of the things that we do, of moving, eating, um, you know, uh, all, all the things that we have to do to to live, that that becomes a burden, and that awareness really let can leads to a disconnection of. Um, the body, the heart, the soul, whatever word um, you want to use. But this empathy is a great, great example of how there are different expressions and different manifestations of, um, of, of seeing suffering, perceiving it either intellectually or emotionally, but then what do I do with it? So, so I, again, I'm always instructed by if I feel this way, what's the application of that? Have you ever... Have you ever done something with somebody that's the opposite one of you? Like if you both care about that subject? Uh, mm. I, I have a friend that I uh, do stuff with in like in civic kind of things. Mm-hmm. And oh man, when we're both together and I'm doing the intellectual empathy and she's doing the, the emotional Oh, I see what you're saying. And uh-huh. she's kind of, okay. and I'm like kind of with her so that because she, when she, she is an empath and it Emotion, can, it can actually empath. be pretty scary to see her. Like when does, does it make, really, is it like you two are wonder twins and, and yeah, you augment man. each other's power? It is because, so awesome. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it is really fun. Compliment each other. when you, Yeah. When we're, we're both like they're doing our thing, but also keeping each other from going too far, mm-hmm. like in our, our one direction, it's, it's, re- it's really fun. Uh, nice. see, and, and that, that's awesome to, to see those, to see that complimentary and see somebody that has a different expression, a different, what I say is a, you know, a different chord, um, you know, or, or, or a different frequency. Um, you see how that just enriches the music. Um, yeah. and so that's, that's kind of, the, and, and to, in response to your question, that, that has been the last 23 years of me and my wife. Um, she, she, <laughs> awesome. said she said something the other day, um, that was, that was very profound. She said, I love your words. And I said, that's right. Um, except you've taught me love and I've taught you words. We've, it's, we've ebbed and flow over time because the reality is, is as good as I am with language. I do, I'm not good at communicating love. You know, I love you. This, thank you for doing, I don't, I do do that. I have a different expression. So as a, somebody who's naturally just kind of a wordy talking, let me explain this in really good detail, but don't kind of have, anyway, it's so, yeah, I think finding those people is really, really helpful, especially for emotional empaths to be able to find the intellectual empaths to say, now help me take this and do something with it. Help me take these feelings and apply it into the world. Otherwise, it's just masturbation. 
masturbation. <laughs> well, you just should over everybody. That's right. That's right. Uh, that's, gross. that's right. All so, right. Well, we've been doing this for two answers, hours. So there's the answer to everything. Um, everything. That's 42 right there for you. Right there. Just don't be in competition. <laughs> I, and and I, we, we're in an abundance. We're abundant. I like it. In, in sustainable abundance, not yeah. in scale. But it, we say it all the time, right? Zero sum game, zero sum game, zero sum game. Yeah. Right? Now, stop. Let's stop doing that. What I've found in my life is I have, it's been necessary for me to um, cut, cut out um, a lot of people in my life um, in order to get to this place. Um, it's just been, there's just too much. Well, I, I need to, I, I, that's what I have needed to do um, in order to reduce the amount of competition that I'm experiencing. Because in retrospect, when I see the people that were in my life that, that no longer are, it's, it turns out um, either there, there was a competition of something. There was a view of scarcity. Um, and with friendships and with relationships, there should never be, um, there, is, there is no scarcity um, to love. To me, that's the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the law of the jungle, the law of the rainforest. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel incredible um, uh, I'm, with, the rain, with the Amazon uh, being on fire right now for as long as it has. I've been, it's been, man, it sucks, it's shit. Um, but I think about how, you know, we, we are essentially wireless trees. We are, we are wireless plants. And if the jungle was like we were, you'd have these big trees being like, you know what we need to do? We need more carbon. We should get rid of the little trees and the little shrubs and the ground cover so we can have more carbon. And then they tear it apart. And then they realize, oh, shit. Those were the things that were feeding us carbon. We just cut off the very thing that we needed the most. And I think we do that an awful lot with other um, individuals and animals and Plants. We're shit to the we're shit to the planet. We're shit to we're shit to other vulnerable things that we view as beneath us, including our children. I think ultimately the problem that we have with abuse to children is that at our core we just don't view children as equals. But that's another topic for another day. <laughs> but I have to say thank you for letting me talk to you guys. You're welcome, Tracy. Thank you for joining. No, you guys were awesome, and this was fun, and I enjoyed it thoroughly talking to you guys. Thank you. No, thank Start you. Start meditating. Yeah. <laughs> I will. I yeah. will do it right now. Truly, get, a, yeah. get, a, get an app. Um, start there. Start music. Uh, you know, use music. Don't, don't find anybody else's... Um, pattern or model or uh, this is the way to do it um find time with with you and your 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 is always start with the heart add the breath and then go to the mind just like we developed i love the i've been, been really trying to focus on the heart because the one thing that existed before i ever took a breath was my heart and it's the thing that i need the most and um, i love a line from um, from one of my favorite philosophers, Alan Watts, who says, there is no time, there is only rhythm. The one thing that, the one rhythm 
that is with us always and has been with us always is our heartbeat. So if you can't go to your mind because it feels unsafe, try to go to your heart. That's my advice. Awesome. I like that. That's really beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you everybody for joining. We'll, we'll do this in another couple of weeks, probably. Cool. Bye. And you're out. All right. Well, thanks, Bye. everyone. Bye. Yeah. Night. Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Dashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Hey, Tom. All right, we recorded last night, and at the beginning of that conversation that we had on Patreon, I mentioned how I'm trying on this new worldview. And and pardon me if I pause in between words that I'm saying. I'm trying to think of the right thing to say. I'm not sleepy and I'm not stoned, okay? (laughs) Maybe I'm a little sleepy. Uh, but, uh, so I said something about how I'm trying on this new world view that all is well, and there really aren't any problems. And you're like, how in the world do you do that? I'm with you. I don't, I don't quite know how to do it too. Let me, let me tell you what I'm trying to do. And I'll try and break this down for you. So you remember when, um, we started having those conversations a year ago, probably about cognitive distortions, right? And cognitive behavioral therapy and, you know, so it's these bad thinking patterns, these bad habits of thinking that everybody has. Every everybody has different degrees, different levels of these bad thinking habits, I think. But you can with consciousness, which is awareness and focus and determination, you, you can uh, change those bad thinking habits. And one of the, the lists, is of, and this is that book, um, Feeling Good by Dr. David Burns. And one of, the, one of the cognitive distortions is discounting the positive. You know, there's like black and white thinking and catastrophizing. And it's basically, you know, if you're discounting the positive... It's a form of ignorance, and maybe a better way of pronouncing that would be ignorance. You're just ignoring the positive things and maybe not giving them the appropriate weight that they should have, and it's a distortion. It's, it's a cognitive distortion. Things seem a lot worse than they actually are because you're focusing on the, the things that are bad, painful, uncomfortable, um, rather than the things that are just fine and that are working perfectly. So the way I thought about this, I think is it's probably a little pedantic, but it feels pedantic because we're not used to focusing on these things. These are things that we 
are used to ignoring and everybody ignores it. And so why spend any time focusing on it? It doesn't matter because there's other problems in the world, right? So what what are some of the basic things that you need to say that all is well? I mean, that means that you're alive, right? It means that you're having your basic needs met to stay alive. And that starts at a at a fundamental level of what it takes. I mean, what what does it take for you to be alive? You you need food. You need love. <laughs> you need water. You need sunshine, you need light, you need all these different things. And why do you need those things? Because you're body needs to regenerate itself your cells need to regenerate themselves with oxygen and with nutrients from the food and the energy that you get from the food and if if you don't have that and there's people in the world that don't but even even behind that those you know like your digestive system and and all the you know these are these are built on cells that come together to form organs and different organs that work together to maintain a system like a digestive system or a nervous system or a circulatory system in our bodies. All these uh, complex, nuanced functions that are happening to keep you alive. And, you know, sometimes people get sick. A lot of times people get sick. Um, but yeah, that that's part of life. That's part of nature. So like, I guess recognizing that life includes death, that the experience of life includes pain, that the experience of life includes people being dishonest with you. You know, the experience of life includes not only the joyful things, but also the negative things. But then, you know, focus on the joyful things so you're not discounting the positive. Um, I think if, if you go down even to, to deeper levels than your, um, you know, like at a cellular level, there's these molecules that make up each cell in your body and there's the atoms that make up the molecules that make up the cells that make up the organs that make up the systems that keep your body alive and there's this whole complicated like incredibly intricate process not only that's happening in inside of you and inside of every single cell in your body but is inside of every single cell of everything that exists in this world and it's every atom, every subatomic particle, you know, all of it that's working together in a way to support your life, which is a brief period of time in a much larger scheme. But, you know, like we've talked before in those conversations with Quad discussions you know the the atoms that make you what you are are indestructible they existed before you those atoms somehow 
knew, and that, that's a terrible word, but they somehow had the intelligence to come together to form the molecules, to form the cells, to form the organs, you know, to, to create the life that is you, to create the things around you that is you. And that process continues. It ebbs and flows. It fluctuates. It pulsates. It's rhythm, like Matt said last night in the discussion. It's this rhythm of the universe that's happening at its most fundamental basic levels exactly how it's supposed to. And the result of this bubbling and gurgling of atomic energy and quantum fields and you know all these different things that our theoretical physicists are discovering about the nature of the reality that we're made from, that we are a part of, it's working just fine whether we're aware of it or not, and most of it we are not aware of. So it makes it really easy to discount the positive because we just take it for granted that all of these things are happening. And we focus on the, the things from just our very, very tiny, narrow, egoic perspective of life, of what's happening around us, that things that don't go exactly the way that we want them to or don't go exactly the way that we expect them to or, you know, from from maybe the trivial kinds of offenses to really, really egregious transgressions one person against another or against whole groups of people, you know, there's, there's a whole range. But all of that <laughs> in the eternal perspective. <laughs> yeah. The fucking eternal perspective. We're back to that. It's it's all very small, and it 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 doesn't. It's not a cancer that's on the organism of life. It is the organism of life. It is the entire. It's everything is exactly in its place. Everything is exactly as it is, and the way that things are continue to create an environment that sustains life and if we're going to be totally myopic then we think oh just human life and and those are the conditions that the environment needs to meet in order to be successful but actually our our species evolved from single-celled organisms and it's really life like life in all of its eight billion forms on the planet However many forms there are on other planets, other places in the universe, you know, like, it's a big thing, man. It's a big thing. Remember this phrase that you loved from Conversations of Quantum? Significantly insignificant, <laughs> you know. What, why, why is that significantly insignificant? Because it's a small little piece, but man, you feel it, damn it. It's significant because you're the little small piece and everything that happens you feel. So it is significant, even though in the grand scheme of things, it's not that significant. Except it is because everything is working together to create you and the emergence or, or you are the emergence of this. It's like a, an oceans and waves and this whole sea of H2O has these crests and troughs and, you know, for a brief period of time, Tom Perry exists in this world. And then he doesn't. 
but the stuff that made you exist in this world, the the water and that ocean, that's still there. It's still going on. And I think because it because it had the intelligence to form you in the first place, that there is there's got to be some intelligence like a energetic DNA, you know, like energy forms all of this physical matter and it does it by itself, right? It just self-organizes. There's intelligence there. We know in our bodies it's our DNA. It's our genetics. There's got to be some something that is the genetics of the genetics, the DNA of the DNA on the energetic level. And all of that's working. So in that sense, all is well. I don't know. What do you think, man? Is that helpful at all? You, you, you said you were wanting me to reach down. <laughs> what was it? <laughs> when, when we talked after. Uh, you wanted me to reach down from my perch <laughs> and, and help you get more enlightened view of the world? I don't know, man. I don't know if that's what this is, Tom. It's just these things are interesting to me. I'm trying it out. I think the the most helpful thing I, I mentioned in the course of the discussion is trying to get away from judgment, trying to get away from these things that happen in this matrix world that we live in, that something is bad or something is good. Um, and, you know, like Tracy and others uh, of our listeners who are listening to us mentioned, yeah, you're always judging. You can't get away from, from judgment. And I think that's right. But I think if you can observe what you're doing and observe the impact that that judgment is having on your own sense of well-being, this is when you start getting into the realm of feeling good by Dr. David Burns and cognitive distortions and cognitive behavioral therapy. And that you can actually, through focus and dedication and determination, you can become more of a master of your thoughts. And your thoughts impact your feelings. Your feelings impact your body. And we're talking about real physical measurable impacts here, stress levels, etc. that could have a very negative impact or things that could have a very positive impact on your body. And another thing I was <laughs> I was thinking of recently, I was thinking of conversations that we've had before with Randy, like the the Tao of Mormonism and those kinds of things where the suggestion comes up that your thoughts shape reality. And and you remember like Randy's classic example was I I might think or I might want to have a 13-inch penis. But what did he say? He said that doesn't give him the additional nine or ten inches that he needs to get there. He said something like that. I think he said. I, th I think he said something like that. Anyway, <laughs> um, but that—that's if you're thinking that the thoughts inside of your head have this magical impact on the outside world, and it's like you're you're skipping some steps. Because what actually happens is the thoughts inside your head change your inner reality of of your mind, your body, the way that you perceive the world changes your own internal physio physiology 
And then the, the things that you do in the world impact the outside world, right? So if you're happy and you're friendly to other people and you say hi when you, see, when you meet people on the, on the street and you look into their eyes and you make eye contact and you actually feel, oh, okay, this is a valuable person, Somehow, somewhere, this is a valuable person. I don't know them, but they've got to be a valuable person somehow. So I'm going to make that assumption that they're a valuable person. And you smile and you make a connection, even if it's just a brief one. You know, the checkout person at the grocery store or something. Like those, those little interactions really can change or have an impact. We'll say have, have a significant, significantly insignificant impact on the outside world because of how you're how you are acting and it does start or I don't know if it starts but it th- there is a connection between the way that you perceive the world the way that you think about the world around you the way that you think about yourself and that those even have epigenetic ramifications so you can you can have mental states, thoughts that can switch on or off certain genetic switches, I guess. Give you, like activate the gene that gives you high blood pressure, for example. Because of the inner environment that you're creating with your thoughts. I mean, it's, it's, re- it's really interesting. Anyway, so all of that stuff that's happening is happening outside of our immediate awareness and consciousness and it's just happening it's just it's just working and it gives us the freedom to obsess over the things that maybe don't really matter i mean you can't you can't prevent yourself from ever getting sick you can't prevent yourself from dying no one's ever been able to prevent themselves from dying even jesus died man <laughs> <laughs> but you you can't, you can't prevent it. And so if you're thinking, dang, that means that there's something wrong. No, the only thing that's wrong is the way that you're looking at it, the way that you think that it shouldn't be there, even though it is. Death, sickness, man's inhumanity to man. The only thing that you can really change and, and impact there, again, is your inner perception and the way that you interact with people around you. And that's like a little small thing that then, you know, could be a domino effect. But if if you've made that change yourself and you've put yourself in a position where you can really feel peaceful in any situation and be the eye of any storm, then haven't you done something really good for yourself? You know, like you can't really force that onto somebody else but you don't need to at that point because you can look around and see oh everybody's learning everybody's growing everybody's progressing it's part of this eternal progression in our eternal perspectives man the atomic energy is recording the experience of everyone and everything and it just keeps doing it and it's awesome and that in and just like evolution it's a cosmic evolution it's an energetic evolution where you can see the progress anyway so that's that's what i've been trying to do tom 
What do you think about it, brother? What do you think about it, brother Tom? All right. 18 minutes and 55 seconds. Boom. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.